Hello, and thank you once again for tuning in to the Reptile Living Room. I'm your host, as always, John F. Taylor. And today's special guest, uh, we interviewed, gosh, probably about a couple months ago now, um, one of the, what I call the icons of the industry. Uh, everybody knows who he is. It's um, none other than Mr. Ken Foose, who writes a uh, column for Reptiles Magazine and Reptiles USA. He's in there all the time. You've seen him. You know who he is. People at the show, everybody knows who Ken is. He's the owner of Exotic Pets Las Vegas. One of the, I consider him one of the forefathers of modern herpeticulture, but he himself will, will deny that, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> Ken's just a really great guy, has a just a ton, ton of knowledge, and uh, always wanted to interview Ken. So we actually met with him at his shop there in Las Vegas and sat down and talked to him in his back office there for a while. And we just had a really good time. I really learned a lot of stuff. And uh, so here it is. Interview with an expert, uh, Ken Foose. So we're here with uh, Mr. Ken Foose. So you started, uh, well, I guess best question is, when did you first get into reptiles? My my first real experience with reptiles, I mean, as a kid, I caught garter snakes and sure. things like that. My first true experience with a reptile was when I was nine years old. Uh, I was out back, I was growing up in uh, Missouri. Okay. And uh, I, I lived in a trailer park, and they were bulldozing. It was August, and they were bulldozing all this sandstone area to put in more houses. Mm-hmm. And what they were doing was just tearing apart these copperhead nests. Like, like oh, wow. So their baby copperheads literally scattered all over the countryside. And uh, out in the backyard, a bunch of kids chasing a little snake, and I looked down there and, and, and saw this little snake. And... They said, oh, what kind of snake is that? And I said, it's a bull snake. Because that's the only <laughs> word for a snake I knew, was bull snake. And so I, I had a beautiful Luna moth in a, in a gallon jar, and I released the moth mm-hmm. and ran down there with the uh, jar. And I remember Marlon Perkins, my icon, <laughs> idol at the time, um, how he would catch kaboon vipers and things like that right. using, using um, his hand. So I thought I would grab this thing behind the back of the head and be just like Marlon Perkins, uh, which I still blame for him to his death. I blamed him for this. And um, I grabbed the snake about halfway down its back, and it turned around and it bit me. And uh, I put it in the jar and proceeded to play like any nine-year-old would do, and I'm running around all over the place, but now I'm in my jar with my snake. And people would walk up to me and say, oh, that's a, oh, that's a scary snake. What kind of snake is that? But it's a bull snake. Oh. And after seeing this bull several times, uh, I, I, I decided to go home because I wasn't feeling very well. And uh, about four hours has now gone by. And I'm walking towards my house, and these college students... Four hours? Yeah, yeah well, about four hours. And these college students are, are living next door to us in a mobile home, a nice married couple. And I said, oh, wow, Flipper, that's what they called me back those days. I said, oh, that's a, that's a really, really pretty snake you've got there. I said, yeah, it's a good thing it didn't bite you. I said, why? I said, well, that's a copperhead. Those things are deadly. <laughs> and I looked at the snake, and I looked at my arm, which is now the size of a water bottle. <laughs> my, arm, my arm is literally like four times bigger than yeah. it's supposed to be. My hand's all swollen up. I can't move. But no wonder I was having trouble swinging on those trees. And, and so I thought, oh, I better go home. So I went home, and I said, oh, copperhead, got bit, you know. And uh, rushed me to the hospital, and um, uh, which is where I found out there I was allergic to horse serum. 
Um, but they really didn't give you any antivenin, and as most people know until recently. Right. You know, copperheads are are are, are, are don't cause fatalities until right. until this last episode uh, a couple months ago. And and I don't know if anyone recorded that's ever died from a copperhead bite until no. the, this one uh, in the Midwest when that happened. Right. But um, so they the they. They took my snake and they literally cut a hole in the glass of my really good jar, which I treasured, and and they they killed the snake. They gassed it, and that really upset me quite a bit because that was yeah. that was my snake. And um, when I was recovering in the hospital, my mother came to me and said, uh, uh, "What can I bring you?" I said, "I want you to go to the library." I want you to give me every book on snakes you can find because I'm going to kill them all. And I was a very serious nine-year-old. And I read up on them and read up on them and read up on them and I'm just thinking, these things are absolutely the neatest things on the planet. About a week later, I got out of the hospital and I'm walking down a trail. My arm is still in a sling. And I have my little dog with me. Toto, yes, was, and my dog's name was Toto. And we're walking down the trail, and the dog starts going berserk, having a fit. And there, in the middle of the trail, is another one of those baby copperheads. Uh-huh. But they're still spread out all over the place. Right. And I found a stick, and I killed that snake. I mangled it. I, I ripped off its head. I picked it up and slammed it against the tree. All that was left by the time I got done was what something that looked like raw beef jerky. Wow. And I stepped on it and I stomped on it and I killed it. And I said, this is what you get for biting me. And that, I can honestly say, is the last snake that I ever killed for no reason. Right. And to this day, I have a very nice collection of copperheads at home. Nice. It's, it's my favorite snake. <laughs> is it real? Okay. It's my favorite snake in the world. Uh, it is, um, uh, when I had my zoo up in Virginia City, I had a whole lot of uh, pit vipers. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I closed it, of course, uh, I was grandfathered with the animals, but I had a lot of rattlesnakes. Okay. But my interest really wasn't in rattlesnakes anymore. So I slowly sold them off to people out of state. Okay. Or gave them away. And um, and eventually all I had left were my copperheads. Oh, okay. I still got eight copperheads. <laughs> and and they're and they're they're quite nice. Yeah. And uh, and up until a couple months ago I thought, Oh, they'll never kill me. You know? <laughs> but uh that that was kinda of surprising. But uh but that's how I got started in it anyway and, and by the time I was about twelve or thirteen years old, I had a collection of about five hundred snakes. All local, all locally collected by me. Right. Uh, and it was all the uh, real high-end stuff like diamondback water snakes and yellow belly water snakes, uh, you know, the ones that bite you and poop on you and vomit on you all at the same time. And, and I had um, uh, you know, prairie kings and right. uh, emery eye, what is that, the um, great place rat snakes, right. and, and ring necks. I had all kinds of snakes. And... Uh, I built this giant pen in my backyard because after the uh, Great Plains skink escaped and bit my sister's ear through her pillowcase um, in her bedroom one night, I was not allowed to have snakes or animals in the house anymore. Gotcha. So I built this huge pen outside, and I had literally 500 snakes in this giant pen. 
it measured like 30 feet long and 20 feet wide and it was only 12 inches tall and I had all this screen all over it. Right. And when animals, when I had to feed them, I would go to the lab at W uh, at KU and they would give me leftover right. genetic research mice. <laughs> and then I would go out to the swamp behind my house and I would catch toads. I'd throw all these mice and toads into the pen. Into the pen and just... Uh, and nature took its course. Free for all. <laughs> I just let them, let, them, let them take care of it. And But that was, that was my uh, first real experience with I, I produced, if we'll call it that, I I produced my first eggs when I was 11. It was okay. a red milk snake from, from Kansas. Uh, by then, I, I moved to Lawrence, Kansas, and um, I, I think I got six babies out of it. And yes. it was, was kind of neat because there were no books on how to do this. There was nothing. Right. So I, I literally thought, well, they, they lay their eggs. I thought they'd lay their eggs underground. Uh, at the time, and mm-hmm. so I thought, well, you know what, I just got a bucket of dirt. And I dug out about half of the dirt, and I put the eggs in in the bucket, and I filled it in with dirt. Sure. And I left it out on my back porch. And that was it. And you know, two months, three months later, I don't know, you know, one day I just walked out and passed my bucket of dirt, and there was a little head sticking out of the dirt, and I dug them up, and there were like six baby red milk snakes. <laughs> They all hatched, and that was kind of neat. I, I begged my mother not to uh, make me keep them outside. Right. Um, and, of course, then I just took them and let them go. What was I going to do with right. baby snakes? But she wouldn't let me do that. One day I brought home an egg mass that I found on her hollow log, and um, it was this big thing. And I thought, ooh, these must be like salamander eggs. Sure. And it was a big blob. There were like 2,000 little eggs. Right. So this is very neat. So I put it in a, in like a box, and I put it in my closet because mm-hmm. it was in a dark place. And I sprayed the box so it's all damp and moldy and gross. And and then uh, I came home from school one day, and my mother was waiting there for me with her skillet, which she proceeded <laughs> to beat me with. She beat me with a skillet a lot. And I, what, what do I do? She says, "What is all over your clothes in the closet?" And I went in there and looked, and, and it was all my clothes and the walls there, they were covered with slime. I mean, it was like really gross. And I went, well, I don't know, where are my eggs? And the eggs are all hatched. And look, they're slugs. They're, 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 or snails without shells, right. I'm not sure what. But they're like 2,000 of them. <laughs> and they're all over my clothes, and they're all over the wall, and they're hanging, they're, they're dropping down off the ceiling. And, and I had I had these slugs all, all over my clothes and uh, so I, I thought they were salamanders, of course now I would know they weren't salamanders but right. I thought that, oh, that's got to be a salamander, you know it's not as bad as when I blew up the kitchen <laughs> when, I, when I was trying to make crystals with my chemistry set but uh, but almost as bad you know. nice <laughs> now where did you get your uh, formal education? I um, um, have a degree from Kansas University in zoology Okay. And uh, as far as formal education in reptiles, they're really, you know, I mean, there, there is no degree in herpetology in, in the United States. Uh, you just got to specialize in whatever. Fortunately, when I was young, in those years when I was collecting a lot of snakes, mm-hmm. uh, I had the fortune of, of meeting Joe Collins, uh, who was a... Uh, the curator of the Natural History Museum at Kansas University. Right. And he would pay me to bring in specimens. 
and uh, not I was again, but I was again, I was actually no, I think about it. Joe, <laughs> Joe was Joe was pretty much ripping me off. Uh, but uh, but I would uh, I would go out and and collect uh, you know. Well, for for example, I used to collect a lot of prairie kings, and one day I caught a very odd-looking prairie king. Now, keep in mind there aren't a lot of books, and I'm not, you know, I'm 12, 13 years old, so I'm not sure. very well traveled. And as far as my stingray bike will get me, is about as far as I could ever go. And uh, but I brought the snake in because I thought it was kind of odd, and he was very excited, and I thought I was going to get a lot of money for it. I got a pat on the head, I think. And uh, or he was just checking to see because he has no hair, and I think he was just envying. <laughs> but uh, uh, I hope Joe reads this, or hears this. Uh, but uh, he, um, he says, "This this isn't a Prairie King thing. This is a Great Plains rat snake." Huh? And it was the first one recorded from Douglas County around around Lawrence. Right. Uh, so it was a new range extension, which I'm gotcha. sure he was able to put into into SSAR oh, or sure. herpetology or something. And and uh, and become even more famous than he already was. <laughs> and uh, but I had I had like a record for the largest queen snake ever captured. Uh, and um, uh, things like that. But I would so. But anyway. But I got I, anyway. I, I've studied reptiles and amphibians all my life. Uh, ever since I got bit. Mm-hmm. And and most of my formal in- education has really been informal. Okay. It's, it's knowing the right people. Like I said, Joe Collins was a big influence. Uh, he introduced me to one of his best friends back in the day, which he doesn't even remember me from then, which was uh, Jim Murphy, who was curator of reptiles at the Dallas Zoo for years Dallas and years Zoo, and years. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the greatest herpetologist that's ever lived. Right. And, uh, and Jim met me when I was like 12 or 13, but he can't recall it. And, uh, <laughs> uh, Jim and I have been to the Amazon together and other places together, and, and we've been friends for a very long time. But I said, but you know, I met you when I was 12. <laughs> he says, you were never that young. So, uh, uh, so I, I uh, but, you know, I, I'm good friends with Ernie Wagner from, from the, you uh, ex-director and curator at the Woodland Park Zoo, yeah. another man who is a, a major pioneer right. in, in this field. And just being around these people enough right. was was enough to um, you know, really help a lot. You, you, and that's why I go to a lot of the places I go now, to conferences mm-hmm. and things. Uh, not so much the reptile shows, but, but conferences, because you, you, can, you can meet these people. And, right. And and the, the giants of this field, and all you've got to do is sit in a corner and listen. Right. And you, know, you can learn more in two hours if you keep your mouth shut and just listen to these people talk than you'll, right. than you'll ever learn in a book. Yeah. And uh, and that that was always important. So uh, it was it was it was fun times. And then uh, ev- eventually, um, I applied <coughs> for a. Um, I'd worked at a, uh, several smaller zoos, and I was working at the zoo in Spokane, Washington, um, for several years. And, and I applied for a job as curator at the uh, Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum. Yeah. And uh, and I'd never been turned down for any job that I interviewed for. Okay. So um, it came down to me and uh, some obscure fellow named Howard Lawler who was curator of reptiles at Zoo Atlanta at the time. And Zoo Atlanta didn't have a very good reputation back then. And I thought, well, that's kind of a podunk zoo. Uh, (laughs) I I got this as a shoe in Right, right. And so Howard got the job, 
and and the reason Howard got the job is because he's from the, the, the area, and it was not curator of reptiles; it was curator of, of small animals. Oh, I see. And he, uh, you know, they asked, "Tell us, what do you know about the uh, the the fish of the desert?" There are none. <laughs> I didn't get the job. <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, fish in a desert, you know. And so, so Howard got the job. And and it was eminently more qualified than I was, um, and and years go by, and he and I he was president of IHS and SSAR for a while, right. and, and another giant mm-hmm. in, in in the reptile field, and very anti-private collector. So was Murphy, right? Uh, very, you know, anti-private selling. You know, they don't like reptile shows. They you know. Right. But, but we were still friends, and even though, well, at the time, I wasn't really doing much of that either. I was still in the zoo right. <laughs> sector. And uh, Now, in regards to that, because that's something that's come up um, quite a few times in my travels of talking to people such as yourself, you know, that have degrees in zoology and what have you, why is there such a huge divide between herpeticulture and herpetologists, in your well, opinion? Well, there... There, it's it's all a matter of philosophy. Uh, okay. A lot of a lot of academia. Uh, I mean, you've really got three different groups here. Hmm. You've got academia, you've got the zoo people, and you've got the private hobbyists. Oh, okay. Uh, and academia, these these men may do field research. They'll you know they'll go to the Amazon, trudge around in the swamp, and they'll collect blind snakes or whatever they're working with. Right. But the idea of them actually capturing these animals and bringing them home, it sometimes is is just revolting to them. This okay. is this is what they research. But you know, if you research nuclear physics, you don't take your job home with you. You don't take right. an isotope home with right. you. <laughs> yeah. And and for for academia, it's much the same. There's a, there's a lot of laboratory work, but but these are this is important stuff because these are the guys that that have taught us how to do DNA testing, right. and these are the ones that have taught us you know, polypeptides and broken down uh, uh, venomous snake venoms and proteins mm-hmm. that are leading to medical research, and that's just it. They're studying these animals not only to try to better the animals' chances in the wild, mm-hmm. but they're studying these animals to see what benefits we as humans can get out of them. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of this research going on. I mean, a tremendous amount of research like with oxalotls. I don't know where it's going. But, you know, wouldn't it be nice if they could figure out how they regenerate limbs? Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be... Da- and I know there's a, a, a multi-billion dollar team of people working on it. Working that. on it right now, yeah. Uh, and, and, and snake venoms as medication for Alzheimer's and... and and diabetes, all, and, uh, diabetes yeah. and all this other stuff. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and that's academia. They really don't look at these animals as pets. Right. And then you've got your zoo people, and and back in the old days, the, the zoo hobbyists and zoo people who were hobbyists too, and and hobbyists there, there were no hobbyists. Uh, the zoo people were the hobbyists. Right. Uh, some of them had their collections at home. Uh, some of them didn't, but once again, these are people who are dedicated to the preservation mm-hmm. of these animals. They want to establish breeding colonies. They they they're doing very strict lineage work. You know, mm-hmm. they keep very good track of not to breed siblings. You know, and, you know they want to make sure that they've got right. these pure races going on. And 
their goal is to save this animal mm-hmm. for, for of course, their display purposes and for the public. Now, at the same time, the public, if it doesn't pay for uh, their salary by paying to get into the zoo, yeah, uh, there's not going to be any research. So, of course, they've got to go for the gee whiz, bang, animals right. that are really kind of useless to have, but they have them anyway. And so, once again, these people look at this like, you're breeding these snakes, but not for the snake's sake. You're doing it for money. Gotcha. Okay. And and that's just the mindset back in the old days. You just don't do that. Right. You you just don't do that. When Ernie Wagner left the Woodland Park Zoo and became a private breeder, and I was still working at zoos. Right. My one of my idols had just dropped about five pegs. Because I thought, how could you do that? Wow. How could you betray the science for profit? Right. And I once said that to him. Really? And and he looked at me and said, Tough. So I don't care. And but you've got you've got all kinds of people that are that have done it now. You've got uh, I mean Ernie's one of the obvious ones. Right. Uh, Ron Tramper. He's one of the greatest innovators of reptile yeah. sales in the world. Curator at the Fresno Zoo. He was, uh, you know, and, and once again, I have a great deal of respect for that man. Oh yeah. And and uh, I mean, who else would come up with egg to egg in a year as an advertising ploy for, <laughs> for for veiled commands? That was incredible. Yeah. And I was at I was at the Oklahoma City Zoo when he brought the first panther commands in from Madagascar, and Dave Grove, the curator of reptiles there, wrote him out a check for ten thousand dollars for four panther commands. Wow. And I was amazed at this. Right, like, right. Oh my God, and uh, it's it's uh, so now I think you've got a lot of old school people in the zoos mm-hmm. that uh, that are uh, that are still clinging to this. Don't do this for profit thing. Right. But really, the lines have blurred quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never cared for the term. Herpticulturist or herpticulture. A lot of people do, of course. Uh, oh, okay. Quite often. Right. I, I, I mean, uh, um, Tom Huff from the Picton, Ontario right. Serpentarium came up with that name 25, 30 years ago. Oh, and I was he, under the impression that it was uh, Philippe. No, it was not. And okay. uh, he came up with that. He actually had a newsletter that he published monthly called The Herpticulturist. Oh. And Tom Huff, now Tom was originally from San Francisco, but went to Canada, and of course Tom's no longer with us. Right. But uh, but he coined the name herpticulturist because he thought, well, aquaculturists work with fish. Right. And so we're herpticulturists, we work with reptiles and amphibians. And so Tom Huff came up with that name, and then uh, Philippe uh, coined it as his own invention several decades later or right. at least a decade later and uh, I, I corrected him on this many times <laughs> and, uh, so and Philippe still doesn't talk to me to this day but so as as the lines have blurred uh, you've got people like um, Randall Berry for example He he's a curator at the um, he's in Arkansas he's a curator at the zoo in Arkansas and, okay. and yet he does reptile shows and Interesting. and uh, and a lot of we, we have contracts with 28 different zoos Really? I'm, the name of this place is Exotic Pets. 
but exotic pets furnishes a lot of reptiles to a lot of zoos. Huh. And, uh, and and they're doing frog research. We just uh, you know we we provide animals to a lot of different zoos right. across the country. Okay. And and they're repeat customers because we sell them nice stuff. Right. But so the line is kind of blurred. Uh, you you see a lot of reptile people at these reptile shows, uh, zoo people at these reptile shows. Right. Uh, Jeff Lemon. Yeah, Jeff Lemon. Yeah. Big wig at San Diego. San Diego. Yeah. And, and yet there he is selling potted plants. Right. At a reptile show, which he continually buys. <laughs> and uh, most of our potted plants, I think, came. From that. <laughs> and so you do have zoo people uh-huh. that have made the crossover. Okay. Um, it's it's hard to get on at a zoo anymore without a degree. Yeah. So you don't see the crossover going the other way unless someone's been in college for a long time. But um, uh, the, the line is blurring quickly. Mm-hmm. The one thing I could say honestly is that more captive breeding research has been done in the private sector mm-hmm. in the last 30 years. Mm-hmm than was done in the last 200 years at any zoos. Right. And and that's because of the, the, the unlimited funding for mm-hmm. the private sector, collectively. Oh, sure. And and uh, the private sector really doesn't have to answer to anybody else. Right. Uh, when I used to do budgets for my reptile department, uh, I was constantly being, well, you know, you can, we can give you this, Twenty-five thousand dollars for this here, but you know those gorillas over there need a new banana tree. <laughs> right. So where does the money go? Money exactly. The growth, even though it's been shown time and time and time and time and time again, the most popular destination in any zoo is the reptile house. Interesting. Always has been. Always will be. People are drawn to what they're afraid of. Right. Right. So so it's always been that way. Something you said that was interesting in our uh, previous conversations, you were talking about when you first opened up a shop, you had everything named in Latin instead of the common names because you knew the Latin names, not the common ones. And that makes sense to me personally because that's the way I know all my reptiles is by the Latin names anyway. And it seems like today in the quote-unquote herpeticulture world, we've lost somewhere between yourself, Bob Applegate, Ron Tremper, you know, all these people that, you know, basically started the industry for what we know it today, the education you guys had, we've lost it somewhere along the way, and now we're just, you know, kind of winging it. <laughs> well, to clarify one thing right now, Uh-oh. Further, <laughs> you cannot put me anywhere even remotely in the class with Bob Applegate <laughs> or, or Ron Tremper or any of these other people. Because um, because because Bob has taught me and Ron has taught me and right. and, and plus Bob is way way too old. <laughs> I mean, look at it. The man's like a geriatric guy. You know, he's uh, and I can say this truthfully because you know Bob's too old to hurt me anymore. <laughs> but uh, but Bob Bob is a a, a a very good friend of mine. Right. Right. And and uh, and I would go over to his home and look at his setups. I've been there several times and, myself. And, 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 and this is fantastic. I, I thought the little drawer thing and everything was kind of useless myself, but but man, the man had results. <laughs> yes, and, he does. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and there's an icon right there. Yes. And a lot of the stuff that we breed today wouldn't be possible without Bob Applegate. Right. And right. a lot of the stuff we breed today wouldn't be possible without Ron. Or Ron Trumper. Right. And and uh, and and you can say that for a lot of these big guys out there. Right. Uh, 
but I, I'm amazed. I, I would disagree with you a little bit because I'm amazed at the young people that come in here mm-hmm. and talk to me at reptile shows and babble at me in Latin. Really? And okay. I have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. And it got to the point where um, I switched over from Latin to right. common names uh, for the sake of myself so I, could, <laughs> so I could communicate with people. Right. And over the last 20 years, I've la- actually lost the ability. Really? Wow. Uh, what is the new name for corn snakes now? Um, Panther, Panthropus, something, something, Panthropus something. Katata, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, when they changed the name of Chondropython from Chondropython to whatever they can, then they changed it back again, thank God. But yeah, no kidding. it was like, you know, they're always Chondros to me. Yeah. And, and yeah. they're always Alethe Gutata to me because now you're going to make me learn new Latin names? Yeah. Damn scale counters. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it. Bob and, Applegate said the same thing. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> well, see, there we go. Uh, but uh, but it's like you know they keep changing things on right, us, and us right. old guys can't keep up anymore. Yeah. And but but I'm amazed if if you find these young people out there, you know they're not zoo people, or they're not academia, but they're just uh, hobbyists. Mm-hmm. And some of them get into it for a living if they're right. lucky. You know, most don't. Right. Uh, but they know what they're dealing with. They know these Latin names. They mm-hmm. know the life cycles of these animals they know what they're doing i'm amazed at the well of information that some of these guys have and they and and nowadays most of these guys are specialized these these younger kids very true they're breeding just this or just this or just this and you know they'll breed nothing but but uh you know the florida king what are we calling them brooks or whatever or going eye or which are all invalid subspecies but still they know Right. And they've got these lines down, and they know what this will do, you know, what's head, what's this, and what are you going to get. And I'm like, I'm baffled right. and, and amazed that these guys are doing the work they're doing. Right. And there's that one kid, I, I can't think of his name right now, but he, uh, he has a place called Barnyard. And all he breeds is, is takers. Mm, okay. And it's incredible. Uh, he's He's got... Um, and he has this lineage down to generations of tegus he's been breeding. Right. And that's almost all he does. And, wow. he, and he's, I, I challenge anyone in the zoo uh, community right. to top this guy's knowledge on tegus. Wow. Because how can you? Right. With zoos and even people like me, we, we spread ourselves out. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I breed probably... You know, seventy-five to a hundred different types of snakes. Mm-hmm. I can't be an expert on all of them, right? Uh, I I know a little bit about all of them, right? I don't know a lot about any of them. Okay, fair enough. And and uh, and but you, you got these guys that do nothing but corn snakes, right? Kathy Love, <laughs> Kathy's a good example, and uh, but not Bill, <laughs> but not Bill. <laughs> be nice to Bill. <laughs> be nice to Bill. <laughs> no, no, no. We're, we're very, very good yeah. friends with the Bugs, too. And uh, we tried to buy their place, but we couldn't afford it. Oh. But, uh, well, plus I didn't want to really live in Florida. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, but exactly. Kathy Love is an expert on corn snakes. Right. Probably one of the foremost experts on 
corn snakes on the planet. Right. And, and this, like I said, this other guy from Barnyard is, is one of the foremost experts on tegus. And uh, there's there's this fella, I don't know where he lives, but he does all nothing but like Florida King morphs and oh, really? and the going and all this stuff. And he's by far an expert on 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 that. And I like that. I like the fact that these guys specialize in something so narrow. Right. But they're so good at it. Yeah, exactly. And and then like I said, you get people like me, which is a generalist. I I no longer breed anything high end. I don't mm-hmm. breed anything rare. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm not even trying to invent the wheel. Yeah. Uh, I am breeding nothing but pet store stuff. Okay. I breed corn snakes and king snakes and rat snakes and gopher snakes and bull snakes. My goal here is to produce the perfect $25 snake. Got it. All I'm trying to do. Okay. Um, because, of course, with that $25 snake goes $150 worth of supplies. Sure. And so by the time I get done breeding and feeding and nurturing my $25 snake, I've got $25 into it. Right. So I don't make any money off the animals, but I do make money off the product. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's um, but that's what I'm trying to be, the Kmart of reptiles. Gotcha. My wife, on the other hand, does all the high-end stuff. <laughs> She's got about a tenth of the amount of snakes as I do. Okay. And her collection is probably worth about ten times more than mine. <laughs> But that's okay. Now, as far as the societies and uh, organizations that you're currently involved in, um, you've been doing IHS for, I can't remember how long now. You've done the, I believe it's the Southern Nevada Herbological, I don't know if it's Association or Society. I can't it's remember. It's Society. Well, society. I, I, okay. I started, I first joined the Kansas Herb Society, and then I left Kansas. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't start it either. And then I started a herb society in Washington called the Inland Empire Herb Society, okay. which folded after I moved to Nevada. <laughs> uh, then I started up the Northern Nevada Herb Society in the Reno area, which mm-hmm. folded as soon as I moved to Southern Nevada. <laughs> and then I started up the Southern Nevada Herpetological Society, which finally I pulled the plug on because I was tired of doing all the work. Right. And, and then my dear wife missed it and decided three, four, five years later to re- make it okay and so the southern nevada herb society is back but i really don't have anything to do with it anymore i told her i said i'm not going to do any work anymore so there <laughs> and uh, she's lucky i show up to meetings <laughs> which i try to do when i can right but, uh, but it's uh but and i just been around for a long time is i just relevant anymore i don't know but it's been around for a long time right right um, well basically uh you started all these things and been involved in them what would you say is the either the lay person or the academia persons? What's what is the benefits that they would get out of attending these or joining? Well, joining a herb society, anyone anywhere across the country, if they're interested in reptiles in any way. Once again, you know, academics may not join a lot, but zoo people and 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 of course hobbyists, herpetoculturists. Right. Um, I'm still a herpetologist, by the way. I'm not a herpetologist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but. Um, uh, despite I do culture herbs <laughs> very well, my but I also but I also breathe air. I'm not an air breather uh, or mouth breather, breather anyway. But anyway, the whole point is, if you're interested at all in reptiles or right. amphibians, which I object to also, but that's beside the point. Um, I've always thought herpetology was a silly science. Really? Well, a reptile is to an amphibian as an amphibian is to a fish. True. 
why, why did we lump frogs and snakes <laughs> in one science? Because they really should be their separate science. Uh, true, very you know, true. They, I would uh, agree there. I mean, we have you know we have aviculture, uh, uh, you know, we have ichthyology, right? We should have amphibianology right. and, and reptology. <laughs> yeah. And uh, why they lump that together, I have no idea. It's a silly thing. It's, right. It's, it goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. But right. Right. The two animals aren't even closely related. Yeah. Uh, so, but anyway, so people should join herb societies. They should get involved. Right. For multiple reasons now, but one, you know, the original idea of a herb society was to learn. Right. You meet other people. Mm -hmm. You network. You learn. There was no internet. Yeah. There was no cell phones. Right. There was nothing. You, you, there were no fax machines. Yeah. You, you went to a herb society to learn. And you could also meet people who had something in common with. Maybe you become friends, maybe you don't. Uh, but you had a chance to make friends and discuss these things and learn as much as you could. Right. Uh, when, when the first symposiums started, um, like IHS, IHS originally was the, the, uh, the international symposium on the captive breeding and husbandry of reptiles and amphibians. Oh, wow. And that's what it was. Okay. And the very first one they had in Maryland, keep in mind I was probably about 13 or 14 and I couldn't go to Maryland. Yeah. Uh, but we're very excited because next year, not this year, but next year is the 35th anniversary of IHS and we are going back to Maryland. Really? Finally. Wow. Which is, which, and we're being hosted by the originator of IHS. Whose name eludes me at the time at this moment, but right. but he is hosting us. The wow. man that started it all. And so back when IHS first formed, there once again there were no computers, there was, there was no internet, yeah. there was no nothing. And so you you had to go to IHS to learn all the new stuff that's going on. You want to learn how to breed a corn snake? Ernie Wagner's giving a talk on corn snake breeding. You want to learn how to breed uh, uh, tricolored king snakes? Bob Applegate's given a talk in that symposium right. on bicolored king snakes, and that's where you went. And then at the end, you got the, the proceedings, a really nifty little book. Yeah, had it all, all the papers all published, and that was important. And and I've been to almost all of them. Right. And because I originally it was because I went there to learn. Mm -hmm. I presented a few papers, not many. Um, and low regional herb societies are the same way now. You go there to learn. Sure, mm -hmm. we've got the internet now. We've got all this instant information at our fingertips, but you still go to learn. Right. Uh, you have presenters there that can give you really good talks, but it's also a social thing. Sure. <laughs> and IHS right now is probably more social mm -hmm. than anything else. We all meet, and it's all our friends. Right. And you know, we've known each other for decades, and we only we're scattered all literally all over the world. Mm -hmm. But this is our chance to get back together and and right. visit. And uh, and because I guarantee you, at night after IHS, the talk <laughs> we ain't talking reptiles. Exactly. Uh, but uh, not in that bar. <laughs> but uh, but it's but uh, but with with regional herb societies, it becomes even more important now to become organized with all this crap going on across the country with with bans and restrictions and and the python bills and right and, and this stuff because now 
people should join her societies not just to learn, not just to socialize, not just to educate themselves, but they must band together to protect themselves. Right. Because this is a witch hunt going on right now. Yeah. And and it's absolutely the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my life. Yeah. If you told me 30 years ago that someone was going to outlaw me keeping a snake in my backyard, I would have told you you were insane. Of course, if anyone had told me 30 years ago that the sun gazer that I could have bought for $45 is now $1,200, bucks, i would have, <laughs> you crazy. I would have, I would have, yeah, right, right, right. The first sun gazer I ever saw was at a pet store in Spokane, Washington, and they pulled this lizard out, and it was magnificent. I went, what's that? And the guy had to look on the list. He came from yeah. a pet farm out of Florida, Rob Roy's place, okay. when, he, when he was first started before he went to Glades. Right. And, and he says, oh, it's, we're going to sell it for $45. <laughs> I said, $45? And you know what I said to him? You're out to edit this. But I'll give you my exact quote. No one in their fiend mind is ever going to give you $45 for a fiend lizard. Says the man who sold the $6,000 lace monitor in his store last year. Exactly. So, but, but back in those days, $45. I was, yeah. I, I was breeding boas and selling them for $10 a piece. Right. To this well, pet store that didn't turn around the bastards and made thirty bucks. You know, it was interesting because Bob Applegate mentioned something similar to that, where he was um, bringing in um, Indian pythons and selling them to zoos and you know what have you for like twenty five bucks. And now you can't find a true well Indian yeah, well, python. Well, you can't get them in the country now because they're CITES. Right. CITES one, you can't get them anymore. But all the Indian pythons that are here have probably been all hybridized with birds. Right, exactly. And, exactly. and you can't find them anymore. There, there are the few people that have got them, but, um, but most of those are academia or zoos. And right. that's not breeding them to the public. Which, you know, because you have to have a, you know, a CBW to get them across the state line, so right. it's kind of a pain in the butt anyway. Yeah. You know? So it's, it's a. Uh, but yeah, Bob's right, though. Uh, my, my first. My first Burmese pythons that I ever bought, I was probably about 16, 17 years old, and I was still in high school, and I bought 30 baby Burmese pythons that were in, imported from God knows where, mm -hmm. and I bought them for $15 a piece, right. and I turned around and sold them for about 25 bucks, Yeah, and sold them all right. overnight, like they just went. And of course, back in those days, we had to mail them. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and and of course most of them went locally because I sure. had a way to communicate with people outside of my area. Yeah, people all to this day say, "So you did a lot of snake hunting in Kansas?" I said, "Yeah." I said, so if you were driven down Highway 161 route, this and this and this, I said oh, I was 12. <laughs> I, I had a stingray. <laughs> my stingray didn't get me that I, far. I could, I could go as far as the county line, but by the time I got to there, I had to go back home because it was time for dinner. Exactly. You know, it was like I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I said. I said no. I'm sorry. I, I've never. I have since then. I've driven back and collected. But sure. I said no. I've never collected there or there. I've collected wherever I can get you on foot. Right. Right. And so I, I don't know any of these places, and, and even here, people call me all the time and ask me, "Where's a good place to collect around here?" And I, I don't know. Yeah. Ask my wife. Ask, yeah. ask the Herb Society people. Right. Because they know, but I don't collect. Right. I I don't go out. I don't road hunt. There's there's, there's nothing here that I want. More and more and more important as as time goes by. Mm -hmm. If we don't organize and and get started, if if we don't get started on this, these people are going to run over us. Right. And, and there's not, not, nothing we're going to be able to do. 
Okay. And I, I mean, I know you know U.S. Arc is doing what they can. Right. But U.S. Arc isn't going to win this battle. Right. Uh, we all have to do this together. Mm -hmm. The big letter campaign they had and, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I must have written 200 letters. Right. And but everybody's got to do that. Yes. Yeah. Because if we don't, we're going to lose it. Right. We can't all depend and, on Ken Poos to write all our letters for us. <laughs> well, well. Plus, I, well, plus, there's a lot of people that wrote a lot more letters than I did. And uh, it, it was kind of <laughs> like when you're, you're almost a decade ago, uh, here in. It was against the law to collect reptiles in Nevada. Oh, wow. So what's up commercially? Okay. And one day my son was playing in the backyard, and he picked up a scalopras okay. off the wall. Big, beautiful thing. And, and sure. That's very, very nice. But you've got to put that back down. That's against the law. And he put it back, and I went, what the hell? Yeah, exactly. It's like, and I went to the, wait a minute, we're denying a kid. <laughs> I went to the Division of Wildlife, and I said to them, this is wrong. Yeah. I said, everybody does it. Yeah, exactly. Why Why is it that my son, who's interested in collecting reptiles and picking them up and looking at them and maybe keeping a couple, mm -hmm. more than likely putting them back on the ground, he's breaking the law. Right. This is this is wrong. So I went through all the steps and went to the Wildlife Commission, and we changed the law nice. to where you can legally collect reptiles now for personal use. Mm -hmm. And there's a bag limit; you're not allowed to sell them. Right. That was never the goal. But uh, but at, a, at the rate we're going, mm -hmm. we're not going to be able to keep a lizard like that in our home anymore. It's going to be illegal. Right. And that was Mr. Ken Foose uh, talking to us about reptile keeping and some of his thoughts and now we had to stop this interview about halfway through so there's another half coming um as you'll see on the show there's actually two separate interviews because uh ken and i did have a pretty lengthy conversation and just to get everything in uh one interview would take up too much room on the server so basically that's the reason it's split into two interviews please do drop some comments in the show notes and uh and jump on to the second half of the interview with uh, mr ken foos